section one of a description of millennium hall and the country adjacent by a gentleman on his travels this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. a description of millennium hall and the country adjacent by sarah scott a description of millennium hall part one dear sir though when i left london i promised to write to you as soon as i had reached my northern retreat yet i believe you little expected instead of a letter to receive a volume but i should not stand excuse to myself were i to fail communicating to you the pleasure i received in my road hither from the sight of a society whose acquaintance i owe to one of those fortunate though in appearance trifling accidents from which sometimes arise the most pleasing circumstances of our lives for as such i must ever esteem the acquaintance of that amiable family who have fixed their abode at a place which i shall nominate millennium hall as the best adapted to the lives of the inhabitants and to avoid giving the real name fearing to offend that modesty which has induced them to conceal their virtues in retirement in giving you a very circumstantial account of this society i confess i have a view beyond the pleasure which a mind like yours must receive from the contemplation of so much virtue your constant endeavours have been to inculcate the best principles into youthful minds the only probable means of mending mankind for the foundation of most of our virtues or our vices are laid in that season of life when we are most susceptible of impression and when on our minds as on a sheet of white paper any characters may be engraven these laudable endeavours by which we may reasonably expect the rising generation will be greatly improved render particularly due to you any examples which may teach those virtues that are not easily learnt by precept and show the facility of what in mere speculation might appear surrounded with a discouraging impracticability you are the best judge whether by being made public they may be conducive to your great end of benefiting the world i therefore submit the future fate of the following sheets entirely to you and shall not think any prefatory apology for the publication at all requisite for though a man who supposes his own life and actions deserve universal notice or can be of general use may be liable to the imputation of vanity yet as i have no other share than that of a spectator and auditor in what i propose to relate i presume no apology can be required for my vanity must rather be mortified than flattered in the description of such virtues as will continually accuse me of my own deficiencies and lead me to make a humiliating comparison between these excellent ladies and myself you may remember sir that when i took leave of you with a design of retiring to my native county there to enjoy the plenty and leisure for which a few years labour had furnished me with the necessary requisites i was advised by an eminent physician to make a very extensive tour through the western part of this kingdom in order by frequent change of air 
and continued exercise to cure the ill effects of my long abode in the hot and unwholesome climate of jamaica where while i increased my fortune i gradually impaired my constitution and though one who like me has dedicated all his application to mercantile gain will not allow that he has given up the substance for the shadow yet perhaps it would be difficult to deny that i thus sacrificed the greater good in pursuit of the less the eagerness with which i longed to fix in my wished-for retirement made me imagine that when i had once reached it even the pursuit of health would be an insufficient inducement to determine me to leave my retreat i therefore chose to make the advised tour before i went into the north as the pleasure arising from a variety of beautiful objects is but half enjoyed when we have no one to share it with us i accepted the offer of mr lamont the son of my old friend made of accompanying me in my journey as this young gentleman has not the good fortune to be known to you it may not be amiss as will appear in the sequel to let you into his character mr lamont is a young man of about twenty-five years of age of an agreeable person and lively understanding both perhaps seven concurred to render him a coxcomb the vivacity of his parts soon gained him such a degree of encouragement as excited his vanity and raised in him a high opinion of himself a very generous father enabled him to partake of every fashionable amusement and the natural bent of his mind soon led him into all the dissipation which the gay world affords useful and improving studies were laid aside for such desultory reading as he found most proper to furnish him with topics for conversation in the idle societies he frequented thus that vivacity which properly qualified might have become true wit degenerated into pertness and impertinence a consciousness of an understanding which he never exerted rendered him conceited those talents which nature kindly bestowed upon him by being perverted gave rise to his greatest faults his reasoning faculty by a partial and superficial use led him to infidelity and the desire of being thought superiorly distinguishing established him and infidel fashion not reason has been the guide of all his thoughts and actions but with these faults he is good-natured and not unentertaining especially in a tete-a-tete where he does not desire to shine and therefore his vanity lies dormant and suffers the best qualifications of his mind to break forth this induced me to accept him as a fellow-traveller we proceeded on our journey as far as cornwall without meeting with any other than the usual incidents of the road till one afternoon when our chaise broke down the worst circumstance attending this accident was our being several miles from a town and so ignorant of the country that we knew not whether there was any village within a moderate distance we sent the postilion on my man's horse to the next town to fetch a smith and leaving my servant to guard the chaise mr lamont and i walked towards an avenue of oaks which we observed at a small distance the thick shade they afforded us the fragrance wafted from the woodbines with which they were encircled was so delightful and the beauty of the ground so very attracting that we strolled on desirous of approaching the house to which this avenue led it is a mile and a half in length but the eye is so charmed with the remarkable verdure and neatness of the fields with the beauty of the flowers which are planted all around them and seem to mix with the quick-set hedges that time steals away insensibly when we had walked about half a mile in a scene 
truly pastoral who began to think ourselves in the days of theocritus so sweetly did the sound of a flute come wafted through the air never did pastoral swain make sweeter melody on his odin reed our ears now afforded us fresh attraction and with quicker steps we proceeded till we came within sight of the musician that had charmed us our pleasure was not a little heightened to see as the scene promised in reality a shepherd watching a large flock of sheep we continued motionless listening to his music till a lamb straying from its fold demanded his care and he laid aside his instrument to guide home the little wanderer curiosity now prompted us to walk on the nearer we came to the house the greater we found the profusion of flowers which ornamented every field some had no other defence than hedges of rose-trees and sweetbriars so artfully planted that they made a very thick hedge while at the lower part pinks jonquils hyacinths and various other flowers seemed to grow under their protection primroses violets lilies of the valley and polyanthuses enriched such shady spots as for want of sun were not well calculated for the production of other flowers the mixture of perfumes which exhale from this profusion composed the highest fragrance and sometimes the different scents regaled the senses alternately and filled us with reflections on the infinite variety of nature when we were within about a quarter of a mile of the house the scene became still more animated on one side was the greatest variety of cattle the most beautiful of their kinds grazing in fields whose verdure equal that of the finest turf nor were they destitute of their ornaments only the woodbines and jessamine and such flowers as might have tempted the inhabitants of these pastures to crop them were defended with roses and sweetbriars whose thorns preserved them from all attacks though lamont had hitherto been little accustomed to admire nature yet was he much captivated with this scene and with his usual levity cried out if nebuchadnezzar had such pastures as these to range in his seven years expulsion from human society might not be the least agreeable part of his life my attention was too much engaged to criticise the light turn of lamont's mind nor did his thoughts continue long on the same subject for our observation was soon called off by a company of haymakers in the fields on the other side of the avenue the cleanliness and neatness of the young women thus employed rendered them a more pleasing subject for lamont's contemplation than anything we had yet seen in them we beheld rural simplicity without any of those marks of poverty and boorish rusticity which would have spoiled the pastoral air of the scene around us but not even the happy amiable innocence which their figures and countenances expressed gave me so much satisfaction as the sight of the number of children who were all exerting the utmost of their strength with an air of delighted emulation between themselves to contribute their share to the general undertaking their eyes sparkled with that spirit which health and activity can only give and their rosy cheeks showed the benefits of youthful labour curiosity is one of those insatiable passions that grow by gratification it still prompted us to proceed not unsatisfied with what we had seen but desirous to see still more of this earthly paradise we approached the house wherein as it was the only human habitation in view we imagined must reside the primum mobile of all we had yet beheld we were admiring the magnificence of the ancient structure and inclined to believe it the abode of the genius which presided over this very land when we were surprised by a storm which had been some time gathering over our heads though our thoughts had been too agreeably engaged to pay much attention to it 
we took shelter under the thick shade of a large oak but the violence of the thunder and lightning made our situation rather uncomfortable all those whom we had a little before seen so busy left their work on hearing the first clap of thunder and ran with the utmost speed to millennium hall so i shall call the noble mansion of which i am speaking as to an assured asylum against every evil some of these persons i imagine perceived us for immediately after they entered came out a woman who by her air and manner of address we guessed to be the housekeeper and desired us to walk into the house till the storm was over we made some difficulties about taking that liberty but she still persisting in her invitation had my curiosity to see the inhabitants of this hospitable mansion been less i could not have refused to comply as by prolonging these ceremonious altercations i was detaining her in the storm we therefore agreed to follow her if we had been inclined before to fancy ourselves on enchanted ground when after being led through a large hall we were introduced to the ladies who knew nothing of what had passed i could scarcely forbear believing myself in the attic school the room where they sat was about forty-five feet long of a proportionable breadth with three windows on one side which looked into a garden and a large bow at the upper end over against the windows were three large bookcases upon the top of the middle one stood an orrery and a globe on each of the others in the bow sat two ladies reading with pen ink and paper on a table before them at which was a young girl translating out of french at the lower end of the room was a lady painting with exquisite art indeed a beautiful madonna near her another drawing a landscape out of her own imagination a third carving a picture-frame in wood in the finest manner a fourth engraving and a young girl reading aloud to them the distance from the ladies in the bow window being such that they could receive no disturbance from her at the next window were placed a group of girls from the age of ten years old to fourteen of these one was drawing figures another a landscape a third a perspective view a fourth engraving a fifth carving a sixth turning in wood a seventh writing an eighth cutting out linen another making a gown and by them an empty chair and a tent with embroidery finely fancied before it which we afterwards found had been left by a young girl who was gone to practice on the harpsichord as soon as we entered they all rose up and the housekeeper introduced us by saying she saw us standing under a tree to avoid the storm and so had desired us to walk in the ladies received us with the greatest politeness and expressed concern that when their house was so near we should have recourse to so insufficient a shelter our surprise at the sight of so uncommon a society occasioned our making but an awkward return to their obliging reception nor when we observed how many arts we had interrupted could we avoid being ashamed that we had then intruded upon them but before i proceed farther i shall endeavour to give you some idea of the persons of the ladies whose minds i shall afterwards best describe by their actions the two set in the bow-window were called mrs maynard and miss selvin mrs maynard is between forty and fifty years of age a little woman well made with a lively and genteel air her hair black and her eyes of the same colour bright and piercing her features good and complexion agreeable though brown her countenance expresses all the vivacity of youth tempered with the serenity which becomes her age miss selvin can scarcely be called tall though she approaches that standard her features are too irregular to be handsome but there is a sensibility and delicacy in her countenance which render her extremely engaging and her person is elegant miss mansell whom we had disturbed from her painting is tall and finely formed has great elegance of figure 
and is graceful in every motion her hair is of a fine brown her eyes blue with all that sensible sweetness which is peculiar to that colour in short she excels in every beauty but the bloom which is so soon faded and so impossible to be imitated by the utmost efforts of art nor has she suffered any farther by years than the loss of that radiance which renders beauty rather more resplendent than more pleasing miss trentham who was carving by her was the tallest of the company in indignity of air particularly excels but her features and complexion have been so injured by the smallpox that one can but just guess they were once uncommonly fine a sweetness of countenance and a very sensible look indeed still remain and have baffled all the most cruel ravages of that distemper lady mary jones whom we found engraving seems to have been rather pleasing than beautiful she is thin and pale but a pair of the finest black eyes i ever saw animate to a great degree a countenance which sickness has done its utmost to render languid but has perhaps only made more delicate and amiable her person is exquisitely genteel and her voice and common speech enchantingly melodious mrs morgan the lady who was drawing appears to be upwards of fifty tall rather plump and extremely majestic an air of dignity distinguishes her person and every virtue is engraven in indelible characters on her countenance there is a benignity in every look which renders the decline of life if possible more amiable than the bloom of youth one would almost think nature had formed her for a common parent such universal and tender benevolence beams from every glance she casts around her the dress of the ladies was thus far uniform the same neatness the same simplicity and cleanliness appeared in each and they were all in lute-string nightgowns though of different colours nor was there anything unfashionable in their appearance except that they were free from any trumpery ornaments the girls were all clothed in cambric coats but not uniform in colour their linen extremely white and clean though coarse some of them were pretty and none had any defect in person to take off from that general pleasingness which attends youth and innocence they had been taught such a habit of attention that they seemed not at all disturbed by our conversation which was of that general kind as might naturally be expected on such an occasion though supported by the ladies with more sensible vivacity and politeness than is usual where part of the company are such total strangers to the rest till by chance one of the ladies called mrs maynard by her name from the moment i saw her i thought her face not unknown to me but could not recollect where or when i had been acquainted with her but her name brought to my recollection that she was not only an old acquaintance but a near relation i observed that she had looked on me with particular attention and i begged her to give me leave to ask her of what family of maynards she was her answer confirmed my supposition and as she told me that she believed she had some remembrance of my face i soon made her recollect our affinity and former intimacy though my twenty years abode in jamaica the alteration in the climate had wrought in me and time had made in us both had almost defaced us from each other's memory there is great pleasure in renewing the acquaintance of our youth a thousand pleasing ideas accompany it many mirthful scenes and juvenile amusements return to the remembrance and make us as it were live over again what is generally the most pleasing part of life mrs maynard seemed no less sensible of the satisfaction arising from this train of thoughts than myself and the rest of the company were so indulgently good-natured as in appearance to share them with us the tea-table by no means interrupted our conversation 
and i believe i should have forgot that our journey was not at an end if a servant had not brought in word that my man who had observed our motions was come to inform us that our chaise could not be repaired that night the ladies immediately declared that though their equipage was in order they would not suffer it to put an end to a pleasure they owed to the accident which had happened to ours and insisted we should give them our company till the smith had made all necessary reparations adding that i could not be obstinately bent on depriving mrs maynard so soon of the satisfaction she received from having recovered so long lost a relation i was little inclined to reject this invitation pleasure was the chief design of my journey and i saw not how i could receive more than by remaining in a family so extraordinary and so perfectly agreeable when both parties are well agreed the necessary ceremonies previous to a compliance are soon over and it was settled that we should not think of departing before the next day at soonest the continuance of the rain rendered it impossible to stir out of the house my cousin who seemed to think variety necessary to amuse asked if we loved music which being answered in the affirmative she begged the other ladies to entertain us with one of their family concerts and we joining in the petition proper orders were given and we adjourned into another room which was well furnished with musical instruments over the door was a beautiful saint cecilia painted in crayons by miss mansell and a fine piece of carved work over the chimney done by miss trentham which was a very artificial representation of every sort of musical instrument while we were admiring these performances the company took their respective places miss mansell seated herself at the harpsichord lady mary jones played on the arched lute mrs morgan on the organ miss selvin and miss trentham each on the six-string bass the shepherd who had charmed us in the field was there with his german flute a venerable-looking man who is their steward played on the violoncello a lame youth on the french horn another who seemed very near blind on the bassoon and two on the fiddle my cousin had no share in the performance except singing agreeably wherein she was joined by some of the ladies and where the music could bear it by ten of the young girls with two or three others whom we had not seen and whose voices and manner were equally pleasing they performed several of the finest pieces of the messiah and judas maccabeus with exquisite taste and the most exact time there was a sufficient number of performers to give the choruses all their pomp and fullness and the songs were sung in a manner so touching and pathetic as could be equal by none whose hearts were not as much affected by the words as their senses were by the music the sight of so many little innocents joining in the most sublime harmony made me almost think myself already amongst the heavenly choir and it was a great mortification to me to be brought back to this central world by so gross an attraction as a call to supper which put an end to our concert and carried us to another room where we found a repast more elegant than expensive the evening certainly is the most social part of the day without any of those excesses which so often turn it into senseless revelry the conversation after supper was particularly animated and left us still more charmed with the society into which chance had introduced us the sprightliness of their wit the justness of their reflections the dignity which accompanied their vivacity plainly evinced with how much greater strength of mind can exert itself in a regular and rational way of life than in a course of dissipation at this house every change came too soon time seemed to wear a double portion of wings eleven o'clock struck and the ladies ordered a servant to show us our rooms themselves retiring to theirs it was impossible for lamont and i 
depart till we had spent an hour in talking over this amiable family with whom he could not help being much delighted though he observed they were very deficient in the bon temps there was too much solidity in all they said they would trifle with trifles indeed but had not the art of treating more weighty subjects with the same lightness which gave them an air of rusticity and he did not doubt but on a more intimate acquaintance we should find their manners much rusticated and their heads filled with antiquated notions by having lived so long out of the great world End of section one